You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, so we had our first ever Producers Perspective Pro Social last week where only members got to come network, mingle. It was fantastic. If you missed it, go check out my Facebook page. Give it a like while you're there and then check out the ProducersPerspectivePro.com. We're going to be having another networking event pretty soon. Hope you to see you there. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast, everybody. We have a very special guest today. This guest is so special that he had to get special permission to appear on this podcast. I call him the Swami of Statistics. For those of you who have been reading the blog for a long time, you know what that means and who this is. His actual title is the Vice President of Ticket Sales for the Schubert Organization. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Brian Mahoney. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Ken. So I'm going to let Brian explain what he actually does. But in my mind, I always imagine that he sits in his office in front of like a 100 computer screens like a stock trader, analyzing the decades and decades of data from the Telecharge archives, and then gives us all advice on what to do. Uh, Whenever I have a question about statistics, I email him. Uh, He's also a great contributor to the official stat blog from the Schuberts. And if you don't know about this, you should. It's called SchubertTicketNotes.com. Uh, he knows so much about this stuff that the Schubert's asked that he sit in on every advertising meeting for all the shows in their theaters. Let me tell you, when Brian speaks at one of these meetings, everybody listens. So, Brian, here's how we're going to start this thing. I want you to imagine that you're in Idaho or somewhere and you're playing golf. You're on a golf course or you're in a bar or you're somewhere and someone says, hey, what do you do? And this person has never seen theater before. How do you? How would you explain what you do to him? Well... My responsibilities span a spectrum of verticals um, because I have operational responsibility. I have marketing responsibility. Um, it's sort of evolved over time. Um, I started in 1984 running the call center, which back then was the uh, primary means of selling tickets outside the box office. It was certainly the convenience method and the service charge bearing method. It So I oversaw it from 100 employees to a high of 350 before dropping back to about 100 today. Um, I don't have as much direct interaction with it as I used to. I oversee two of Schubert's, Schubert and Telecharge's sponsorships, the one with American Express and the one with American Airlines. I have the A's. Um, I also oversee our customer database, which from which everybody garners their um, direct mail list for um, direct mail for Broadway and also the commercial um, application and also any of the data that we get out of the database that is valuable to marketers. And, and then last but not least, in the license agreement for the theater, it says that the theater 
producer and theater owner should have joint decision-making over the established price of the ticket. And the established price of the ticket is a very technical term that means the ticket, the price that is printed on the ticket. So I represent the theater owner in those decisions only for Schubert theaters. But I am theoretically the one that represents Schubert in terms of, in terms of agreeing or arguing or discussing whatever the, whatever the ticket price is going to be for either the regular price or for a discount. Okay, so how did you find your way to the hallowed halls of the Schubert organization? Um, I started in college. I was working on the concert committee at Georgetown, and I there were two promoters in town, and we were working with the second promoter, and I made a decision with consultation with other students at the time, that we would be better off working with the number one promoter. And the number one promoter was Celador Concerts, and the partner in who was running the Washington, D.C. office was a man named Sam Lahamadou, whose name you may know because there is a road award for Sam Lahamadou. So I went to, I made, I made his acquaintance, made a deal with for him to present Concerts at Georgetown in the first season included Crosby, Stills, and Nash and some guy named Bruce Springsteen in 1975 and became friendly with Sam. Sam gave me a job at my last year of college at the Cellador Nightclub where a lot of famous people played on their way up or their way down. And about a year or two into working there, Sam and his partner Jack Boyle decided to split up. Sam wanted to go into the legitimate theater business. He had taken a lease on the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. at 13th and East Street around the corner from the National. And um, he took several people out of the out of the cellar door, a guy named David Anderson, who was married to Lauren Reed and myself. And we went and helped him get established. Now, this was somewhat visionary at the time because this was 1978. And in the aftermath of the riots of 68 where um, after Martin Luther King was killed there were a number there were riots in Newark and Los Angeles and Washington DC um, people didn't go to downtown Washington and 13th and East Street was in the center of downtown Washington so Sam took the lease on the theater and decided to do um, commercial theater and our first season we had for color girls who considered suicide when the rainbow is enough Neil Simon's chapter two and um, ain't misbehaving, among others, but those are the three that I remember. So we basically we basically saw people coming downtown to see theater who hadn't come in a long, long time because that's thirteen years since everybody said I'm not ten years since I'm not going downtown to Washington D.C. anymore. So that's how I migrated from college to from from college to rock and roll to legitimate theater, and um, while we were there. We had a little phone room for our own, our own purposes, our own theater. And when the National Theater was looking at the lines of people at the Warner Theater and they were being booked by the Kennedy Center, they decided that they needed to make a switch and they asked us to do their phone business. And so we started doing the phone business for the Warner as well as the National. And then one day I got a call in my office at the Warner and a gentleman was was in town from the Schubert organization who wanted to look at our phone room. They, of course, were going to take their phone room, phone sales 
from Washington, D.C. and put it into their phone room in New York. And I went out to the lobby to meet Bob Wankel. And, and um, several years later, when I decided I needed to make a move, I called up Bob, and we had a number of meetings, and I ended up in, in uh, at te- overseeing Telechurch. And that was, that was in, in 1984. 1984. 30-plus years later, here you are. So in those 30-plus years, you talked about already a, an incredible change in the industry from you saw a phone room of 100 go to 350, and now, of course, back down to 100, and I'm surprised it's even that many. Um, what are some of the other biggest changes you've seen in the habits of ticket buyers over the last 30 years? Well, I mean, as with any business um, today, more and more people, um, they don't need to be pushed. They don't need to be shoved. They don't need to be led. They don't need to be incentivized. People choose to do business when they want to, how they want to. And most of them are choosing to do business on the internet. So there wasn't, I mean, it was a natural evolution um, hence how we went from 350 down to 100 because people were migrating to doing business on the Internet where they could do it at home on any hour. They could take their time. They could look at multiple shows. I mean, the phone phone was useful if you knew what you wanted to see and when you wanted to go or you knew three shows and you could sit there and decide between them. But considering that there's an awful lot of people who go to the theater who care a great deal about where they're sitting to the point where they'll agonize over, should I sit in P8 and 10 or Q9 and 11 uh, for the two and a half hours they're going to be in their seats, or in some cases, 90 minutes? They they care a lot and they and they agonize over that. And, you know, back in the day, they would even choose the show they were seeing based on which one had the better seats. So they might choose... Friday night to go to this show because it had better seats and they would see that and they'd see another show on Saturday afternoon because it had better seats. It was all about that. That was very important. So the Internet lends itself to that kind of shopping. We're not theater tickets are not a fungible product where what's your size, what's your color? We can send it out to you. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. People, every seat for every performance is unique for for many customers, not 100 percent of them. People who buy a mobile obviously are not as not as particular, but for people who are buying in the, you know, who care about where they're sitting, they will, they'll spend a lot of time um, engaged with the, with the platform deciding where they want to sit. Talk to me a little bit about the evolution of, of the discount, because a lot of people think, because now there are discounts everywhere, that there were never discounts on Broadway before, but of course that's not the case. They were here, you, they just weren't online, they weren't as readily available. Talk to me how that's changed over the last 20, 30 years. So... Once upon a time, we didn't actually discount very much. I mean, it was, you know, in its day, the major discount outlet was TKTS when it was created in the 70s. But we did have coupons. They were called twofers in the day, but as the prices evolved, they, at a certain point, were no longer twofer. They were something less than twofer, but that's what they were called. And there were two primary discount flyer channels. One of them was called School Exchange. And for anybody who's been in the business a long time, they often refer to it as Burkowski because it was owned by a guy named Paul Burkowski. Um, and the other one was Hit Show Club, which was owned by a guy named Stan Silver, and he bought it from somebody else whose name I don't remember. And ultimately, both businesses were bought by other people. And that was the primary mechanism. The School Exchange coupon was shipped in bulk to a variety of outlets, most of them schools, and um, the 
stands, the hit show club was the ones that you would find on quote unquote dry cleaner counters and shoemakers. And that was in its, which is really funny when you look at how things are today, because back then, oh no, that was always the last one that anybody went on because it was too public. Because it was on your dry cleaner and your shoemaker, and that was, you, you can't do that. That was too public. So everybody liked Burkowski because it was a little bit discreet. Today, discounts are prevalent everywhere, but that's where it started. And back in the day, you could not fulfill a discount of any place other than at the box office. So even if you fulfilled by mail, you still had to have a treasurer do it. And it wasn't until the early 90s where we, um, where, where I, I made the case to Bob Wankel that, you know, we're sitting here paying very expensive labor to fill mail orders. And in many cases, you can't, if they all wanted the, the same two rows of seats for the same four Saturday matinees, you had to call the people back and get another date or another section of the house. And it wasn't a very efficient or customer-friendly process. So we migrated to doing it over the phone. So when you wanted one of those four Saturday matinees in the last two rows of the theater and they weren't available, you could choose another date or you could buy a higher price seat. And that was sort that was sort of the tipping point. And the other part was around also in the early 90s, um, direct mail started to be more prevalent. And direct mail, when it first started, it had discounts. It was only it was only fulfillable at the box office or by mail. And I think at a certain point that it was easy to make the case that we had trays and trays of mail to be filled and we had to bring in treasures to fill it. And the more efficient way to do it was to let those people call up on the phone and buy their ticket with a service fee and get handled by somebody. And it was instantaneous service as opposed to, I can't fill it. We have to call the customer back and whatever. It was, it wasn't a good process. I mean, the business was evolving. And from there, um, other discount channels started to be created and distributed either by email or other websites. And that by, by then it's probably the mid-90s. Yeah, I remember those coupons sitting on my shoe shine guys, all dirty with with shoe polish all over and it. And probably that's where people wrote notes. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was like my receipt, I think, once he wrote it on. It was like a coupon for, I forget what show, and the world goes around or something. Uh, so... You mentioned that you sit in these uh, ad meetings and have conversations about pricing and strategy. What's one of the biggest mistakes that you think producers make when it comes to discounting in general? Do we do it too soon, too late, too high, too low? What do you think in general we could do better? Mm, I, I don't – I think the cat is out of the bag, so I can't criticize anybody for their discount strategy because – we have we've probably spent 20 years training certain buyers of the market that discounts are available and discounts are the way to buy tickets so it's hard to put the toothpaste back into the tube it's like i mean i can't criticize anybody i think if i was to uh have an observation it might be that if we had you know if we had more prices at regular price we might need fewer discounts. I mean, in every anything you read about web-based commerce, you don't want to create too many clicks. And we require extra clicks to get a code in order to access a price. And if the price was part of the theater, 
Um, it's one less click for the customer and it's easier. And for the customer who is informed, they go to the website, they look at the sales, they don't see a price they want, they go find a discount code. For the customer that is uninformed, they, they see the prices, they think they're too high, they leave and we don't know if they're going to come back. We gained a lot of convenience when we moved from the phone to the web. What we lost was the interaction with the customer. I mean, in the old days, most of the sales were done at the box office, so you could walk down to the box office and talk to the ticket sellers and have some understanding of what was going on with every customer who was buying tickets. Then you had the phone. You could still talk to live person, people who were dealing with customers. Now you got a machine that's dealing with a lot of customers. People interact with a machine when they're, when they're doing search. People interact with a machine when they're on the show's website. People interact with the machine when they click through to Telecharge. But we have no feedback on what they're thinking. And if we were more analytical, we might sit there and say, how many are searching? How many are going to the website? How many are clicking through to ticketing? And when you realize that in some cases, 15, I, I ask the question in almost every meeting I'm in, what percentage of people are clicking through to ticketing? And the answers range from 15 to 25%. Well, that means 75 to 85% of the people that are visiting your website aren't clicking through to ticketing that day. They may come back, but, you know, that's a huge number. That's a huge, huge number. And we don't know much about those people or why they're, you know, in the old days, you knew that somebody would call. They'd look at P9 and 11, Q8 and 10. They'd say, all right, I'm going to call my wife, girlfriend, whatever, husband, um, mistress, and I will call you back. Um, so you had feedback to know that they were interested. They were just – and frequently they'd call back half an hour later and want the same seats. I was just talking to somebody, and, and I, I, we were going to buy Q10 and 12. I wanted to check on something. Are they still there? Now you don't have that feedback anymore, so you don't really know what's going on in the mind of the customer. Um, so I, we probably could be smarter about pricing, as a, which is not really about discounting, but it's just about if a lot of people think they need, they only want to spend $99, why make them jump through hoops to go get a code? Why not just have the $99 price there? Well, that was my next question. What's the biggest mistake we're making in the regular price set, if you will, of the full price market? So you'd say it's basically... I, th I think you have to look at your show. I mean, if... You close the window at 7.05 or 8.05 on a weeknight, and you've sold 125 top price, full price tickets, and there's 400 or 500 people in the orchestra, and so the orchestra's not full, and you've only sold 100 or 125 top price, full price tickets, I think you have your answer as to whether or not it could be priced better. Because that's not, 100 or 125 people is not a big number, and I'm not, that's not an unusually low number. That's a common number. So maybe we, it, that tells me we could be smarter about pricing. If only a third of our tickets are being sold at full price and only a hundred of them are top price, full price, well, we're, we're fooling ourselves. You know? When you watch shows launch, how, how similar is the the velocity of sales on a show? Is it is Are the buying patterns... Similar? Could, are they like, oh, yep, this is what I expect to happen on any launch? Or does every show have its own unique on-sale period? Every show is different, and it is um, – and you can't even – I've seen shows that started slow and finished 
sold out doing over a million dollars, a limited run play starting slow and finishing doing over a million dollars a week at the end. So you can start slow and finish strong. It doesn't mean anything. You can start strong and keep being strong. Um, yeah, so every show does launch differently in a different pace. But you can learn something. And one of the one of the reasons to go on sale early is you learn something about what you have. If you put an ad in the paper and nobody buys tickets, now you know you have a, a challenge ahead of you. Well, let's talk about uh, going on sale. Are you a fan of going on as early as you can? Should you be 10 years out if you could or a year out? Is I don't know that I would go 10 years out, but our, our, on our file, the average early adopter buys 60 days out. That's the average. So... In order for there to be an average, half have to be, a percentage have to be more and a percentage have to be less. But yeah, the average is 60 days, which means there's a lot of 90 and 120-day people. So if you were opening a show on Broadway tomorrow and had your choice of how far out you'd go on sale, what would you choose? Well, I I think you will see that most of the spring shows will go on sale in around Labor Day, if not a little sooner. And if they if they have a theater and can and are committed and can go on sale, and fall shows very commonly go on sale in the spring, and so three four months is enough time for you to learn something. You mentioned that seventy five percent of people who visit a website are not clicking through to ticketing, and you said I think your one of your examples is a really good one. People check with their significant others or who are their theater going partners to see if they can make it that night. Any other hypotheses from your perspective on why people, more people aren't clicking through to buy right then and there? Well, they're engaging with the show's website. Remember, they haven't gone to Telejudge yet. So they're engaging with the show's website. So I assume they're doing a little bit of tire kicking on the show um, in terms of the content and what it's about. Um, I like to tell people, and you know, unless you learn very early on that you've got a full price show, we ought to put some pricing information on the show's website because it's the largest portal. It's the largest marketing portal that a show manages to, that speaks to customers. And so if you get 10,000 people a week on a, on a small musical visiting your show website and you know only 15 or 20% of them are clicking through to ticketing from which from there 80% of them may not may, – may, interact with the ticketing system and not buy a ticket, you're losing people at every step of the funnel. So anything you can do to improve the information that they have and improve their interest in the show and improve their conversion. We had a show recently that had two click-through to telecharge buttons. They had one on the homepage. They had one on the tickets page. They made a change to the tickets page, and they added pricing information. And they, the agency was smart enough to track the conversion rate on click-throughs from the homepage separate from click-throughs from the tickets page. And they reported that there was a 50% higher conversion rate on people going from the tickets page than people going from the homepage. And the people on the homepage had less information than the people going from the tickets page. So those who had pricing information presented to them on the tickets page converted at a 50% higher rate than people that didn't. You want to know how much it costs. If you, you, know, you know the old expression, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Right. That, that has sort of driven a lot of our strategy, and we ignore – go by the booth any day, and we always talk about – 
the customers at the booth. But there are a lot of people that never get online at the booth because they go and they talk to the uh, the customer service people there. And if and I haven't been in a while, but the last time I searched, and if, if a customer walks up and says, "What are tick? How much are tickets?" Because our ticket prices are all different and our percentages are all different, you get an, you get a range between sixty five and eighty dollars. And the problem is, if your budget is fifty, you're not going any farther. You're leaving the line and you're going out and you're going and do. I've, I've literally seen two women and their daughters having the conversation. One was willing to spend that money; the other was not. And the funny thing is, there are enough shows with low price tickets elsewhere. They could have gone to the box office, gotten a, a, a purchased a lesser location, and been within their budget. But all four of them went away because one didn't want to spend more than um, didn't want to spend sixty five dollars for her and her daughter to go see a show. So we we assume everybody is willing to pay one hundred and forty or one hundred and fifty and happy with. Seventy-five or eighty dollars at the booth, but it's not everybody. I'm fascinated with this idea now of putting more pricing information on websites. You know, we design these beautiful websites for these shows that I think are art in themselves, and sometimes not great sales conversion tools, as you as you've described. And I'm thinking now of a website that just that has pricing information right on that home screen. There's quite there's not on the home screen, but I think if you. If the next time you have one of your interns do a little research project, have them check pricing information on on uh, on show websites, and you might be surprised how many have either seats from or calendars with very detailed um, not every price for every performance, but you might see three or four different prices listed on the tickets page of the show website with a calendar below it. And sometimes they'll even highlight performances where those price with those particular prices. So that becomes a way of I mean and we found this out on one show because we were trying to push it was a show that with a natural evolution towards weekend performances and we were trying to push sales into the weeknights. And we did all the usual stuff, best locations, weeknights best prices, weeknights, whatever. And we checked the website data and everybody was ignoring it. Nobody was inquiring for the two. They were all inquiring for Saturdays and Sundays and nobody was inquiring for weeknights. So we, the show put a calendar with pricing and highlighted particular performances. And lo and behold, people started gravitating. And they also did some banner advertising with a price message that drove them to a landing page that had the pricing with the calendar and the highlighting, and we started to sell tickets for weeknights. Where do you think ticketing is going to be in 20 years? What do you think is the next thing? Is it mobile? Is it going back to the box office because people actually want personal interaction now? What do you think is going to be next? Mobile will be, I mean, it'll be interesting to see as the, the audience that grew up on technology and mobile get um, ages into a point where they have more disposable income and they're less inclined to go upstairs and more inclined to spend the money to sit in the orchestra. Will they be as picky about locations when they're 64 as today's 64 years old, 64 year olds are? I mean, the audience that has been big fans of theater has always cared about where they're sitting to the point where in the old days they went to the box office. I mean, long after the phone center was there and quoting locations, people still felt, 
I'm going to get better seats at the box office. So those people that would go to the box office to do that, those people that would sit for a half an hour on the phones and care about seat locations, those people that go to the website. And we have people that open multiple windows in order to interact with the ticketing system to find the best seat locations they can. They used to. Now they don't anymore because you can go to the seating chart, you can see everything. But in the days where you had seat locations, people would open multiple windows to try to find out what seats they could get to get the best two seats they could. So there's a there's an audience at, an, at a certain age and income that cares about that. So today's 20 and 30-something, what happens in 20 years when they have that same degree of inc- disposable income? Are they going to still want a quick buy and I don't care where I'm sitting? Or are they going to become like their parents and agonize over P- P10 and 12 and Q9 and 11? And I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to know how they're going to, how their thought process is going to evolve, but they have clearly grown up differently. One of the things that's changed a lot over the years that I've noticed is the brokers coming out of the shadows and onto the web and looking in many cases like a primary ticket seller uh, because they're able to do that on the web. Talk to me a little bit about the brokers and that relationship and how that's well, affected they, Broadway. They, they have always been there, but it's certainly the barrier to entry is a little easier because it's easier to get tickets. But um, I remember when Phantom went on sale in the box office of Phantom in um, 1987. And um, Peter Enton described the people that were online at the box office as Rikers Island rejects. Because they, and because they they were they did not look like theater goers, they would wait online. They would buy their tickets at the box office. They would walk across the street to the man in a uh, maybe parked in a, with a Cadillac, maybe not. But there was a man across the street. He would take the tickets. He'd give them cash, and they'd go back and they'd get on the end of the line and they were buying tickets. So they were digging back then. They were digging with groups. They were digging with mail orders back in the day. I mean, back in the eighties. We, I remember when Miss Saigon, you know, the, 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 all of the Cameron Macintosh shows, you know, Les Mis was hot. People got shut out in the beginning. So when Phantom came along, the people that got shut out of Les Mis were more rabid about getting into Phantom. The people that may have not been so successful in the first two were really rabid about getting tickets for Miss Saigon. And some of the things we saw were rather bizarre. We had a, um, Somebody was filling a mail order, and they made a mistake. They didn't read the copy of the mail order. They read. They picked up the address off of the letterhead, and they so they bought the tickets. They sent the tickets to the address on the letterhead, and we got a call from this small school on the main line in outside Philadelphia wanting to know why we sent them tickets to Miss Saigon. And then a month or two later, we got a letter from a prestigious Philadelphia law firm asking for those tickets back that had been bought by their client. Um, I met a, um, I had a guy come by the office one time with a pile of mail orders this thick. It was his copy of the mail orders he'd sent in. And they had all been sent in with money orders, most many of them consecutively numbered. So we, these are the ones he, that we he hadn't been able to intercept or to get to that hadn't been mailed to him. And, I, and he wanted the money orders back so we could 
turn them in. He, he wasn't yelling at us because we had intercepted his orders. He just wanted his money orders back because he, they, he couldn't monetize them because they were he'd bought them at the post office. And I said, you know all those people, right? We gave, we gave him his orders. We gave him his, uh, his orders back. Those are the ones we caught. That's not of the ones that got through. Those are the ones we caught that were people trying to dig. So digging out tickets is is an old is an old old process. It's not new. It's just with the internet and bots, it's just easier. And I'm not even sure it's more. I mean, when Miss Saigon opened, the it was heavily heavily sold for the first year. And I don't know how much of it was real and how much of it was was brokers. I mean, um, and there and as you if you follow the news, you know that Hamilton was comparing their advance to to Miss Saigon to see if they were record setting. So yeah, there might be more, but I, I don't know if there is or there isn't. It's it's something that's been going on for a long time. What's different is it's easier to retail them because with the internet you can create fake websites. You can look like the primary site when you're not. You can have a site that has, you know, the Ken Davenport Theater and and it looks like it's the Ken Davenport Theater, except it's a broker selling tickets for two hundred and thirty dollars that they could get on discount for eighty eight. You know, StubHub and the Yankees just cut this deal where StubHub's gonna be the official secondary market seller of Yankee tickets. Do you see Broadway ever doing anything like that? Our business is very different. Um you know, you look at concerts, you look at college sports, you look at uh, regular sports. First of all, we don't have season ticket holders on Broadway. Um, in college sports, the alumni typically own most of the tickets to the games with an allocation for students. So if you want to go see Penn State pay, play Michigan State in football, um, if you want to get a ticket, you're going to, the only place to get it is the secondary market because the game is sold out to season ticket holders who are mostly, who are mostly season ticket holders. Um, oh, sorry, it's sold out to alumni who are the, the, the season ticket holders are mostly alumni. Um, if you want to go to a concert and the concert has 20,000 tickets and as we've been reading the paper lately, they don't put all 20,000 on sale and between pre-sales and holds, you know, less than half of the house goes on sale, it sells like this. And if you want a good ticket or any ticket, the secondary market becomes the only place to get it. Even in sports and basketball, if you want to go in the bowl, as they call it, in in, in professional basketball, you know, the, the better seats, the only place to get them is the secondary market because they're sold out to season ticket holders. We don't have season ticket holders. We don't have alumni. We don't have any other than Hamilton. We don't have any of those those barriers. Now, in the case of the Yankees, you're com as a season ticket holder, you're committed to 80 games, right? So chances are you're not going to use all 80 games. And so the secondary market becomes a way to, to liquidate some of your tickets. But we, again, we don't have season ticket holders. So our business is very different. We actually, if we're managing the inventory, right, we have premium inventory. And we therefore, we, with the exception of Hamilton, we always have tickets available. So the secondary market isn't filling a need for either a Broadway producer or a Broadway theater owner or even a customer because we have we our inventory is different we don't have season and we don't have season ticket holders we always have tickets available for the most part in your 30 years what's the most interesting sales show you've seen the most interesting pattern whether it was a good or bad or what's the most interesting thing you've seen 
I think probably, I mean, it's too cliched at this point, but Hamilton has to be it because of the, I mean, the amount of publicity they get, the amount of hubbub, the way in which it is sold. Um, The, I mean, I had a, I sat next to a broker at an opening um, last fall and he told me he personally had $10 million worth of Hamilton tickets a year ago. That was when the the reported advance was $60 million. Um, so I've never seen anything like that. Um, I've seen shows where the, the inventory was tight um, and it didn't last as long as, I mean, the brokers were long on it and the, and the, the inventory wasn't like Miss Saigon at some point it came to, it came to earth. Um, but it came to earth about a year later. So, um, Book of Mormon was pretty tight, but it sort of followed a normal progression where uh, it was tight for a number of years. And um, I would imagine you can now get tickets in the week for Book of Mormon. It's still sold out. Hamilton is somewhat unusual. The producers, I guess, was also unusual because when Matthew and Nathan were in it, it was a really, really hot show. And um, I remember the uh, when they did came back into the 13-with extension, um, the last weekend, the lines were down, as, as they had always been, were down the street for people looking for cancellations. On Tuesday, there was no cancellation line. Fifty years from now, which one of these shows do you think is the longest-running show of all time? Hamilton, The Lion King, Wicked, or Phantom of the Opera? Which one of those four do you think is the longest-running show of all time in 50 years from now? Well, if, if Phantom doesn't close, it will for sure it will be if it continues to run, and I have no reason to believe that it will. It shows no sign of slowing down. Um, but you forgot to include Chicago. I don't want Barry and, 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 and Fran to be upset that they didn't include as well. They won't be the longest, but um, they... I mean, none of them in the past, whether it was Cats or Chorus Line or Les Mis or Miss Saigon, and Miss Saigon ran... Uh, an unbelievably long time at 10 years. Um, there was some pattern and eventually they sort of started to run out of gas. But Phantom is, seems to find new audiences all the time. It has enough family and school appeal that as, uh, Charlie Flateman likes to say, you can sell tickets to the Ridgewood High School eighth grade every year in perpetuity because it's different kids every year. And, Lion King can sell tickets to the eighth grade in perpetuity because it's because it has universal appeal and Disney has great has great strong branding and I David Stone will work to keep Wicked going so it's hard to predict which is going to go because all of them have been very smart very well marketed and have not followed the pattern of of Cats in its heyday and Chorus Line where eventually they ran out of gas now I think. To some extent, the Internet makes it easier. You can put tickets on sale longer. We can be smarter. We have more information available today than we did um, back then. So you can, you know, you've got the Internet. You can look at what people are doing. You can you can market your tickets in a, in a wider variety of places around the world that you couldn't do uh, back in the, uh, early, in the 80s and early 90s. So things are different. I wouldn't want to place a bet on any one of them not being around in 50 years other than me. My last question, which I call my genie question, speaking of Disney, I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to knock on your door 
and says, Brian, you've done a fantastic job at studying all this data and giving us incredible recommendations on all of our shows. I want to thank you for that by granting you one wish. What is the thing that drives you most crazy about Broadway that gets you angry? You're such an even-keeled guy that makes you bang on the table, that gets you fro so frustrated, keeps you up at night. What's the thing that makes you so mad that you'd want this genie to wish away? Public discount sites. Public discount sites. I would rather that we, that we if we have to sell tickets at $99, that should be the price somewhere in the house instead of somebody getting a code to buy the ticket, um, we should just have it be the price somewhere. What I loved about that answer, it was so fast. You had that right on the tip of your tongue. We know what drives you crazy. Thank you so much for doing this for us. Uh, and thank you to the Schubert powers that be that let you do this with us. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to check out all the photos from my Producers Perspective Pro networking event all on my Facebook page. Go check it out and then check out the ProducersPerspectivePro.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.